Home. And as you're opening your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, let me welcome any who might be watching our live stream of the sermon this morning or perhaps watching the recording later on. We're here for you and we encourage you if you're able to join us here uh, among God's people for singing, for prayer, for fellowship and for interaction around the word of God. Our text this morning is from Luke chapter 2, this uh, closing section Uh, As Luke 2 has talked about the birth of Jesus, it moves quickly to the growth of Jesus. And uh, one of the few episodes we have from the growing up of Jesus is right here uh, in the Gospel of Luke. So we'll start in verse 39, those transition verses, and we'll go to the end of chapter 2. And we're reading from the English Standard Version. This is God's Word. Now when they, Mary and Joseph, had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers and listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. May the Lord bless the reading, hearing, believing, and obeying of his holy word. Amen. Amen. The sermon is entitled, The First Words of Jesus, and we're not looking for the very first utterance, whether it's mama or papa or uh, whatever a baby might and we're not talking about that we're talking about the the first words of significance that are recorded in the scripture and we'll we'll get to that i i know in my family uh with raising seven children whom i miss greatly we're now empty nesters um uh, one of our children i'm not going to say which one you can guess but i'm not going to confirm or deny one of our children had a very unique first word as the legend goes his first word was Hot. H-O-T. Hot. Why was that? Well, 
parents needing caffeine, we had coffee mugs around. And when this young, very precocious child, growing quickly, understanding things, he'd, he'd reach towards the mug and we'd say, hot, so often. I think that's how he learned it. At least that's the way the legend goes, the myth, the legend. Uh, the sermon isn't about the first utterance of a toddler named Jesus, but rather these words... And I think we do well to see that the careful theologian Luke, the careful historian Luke, is very selective, right? He doesn't have all the stuff that Matthew has in chapter 2. Luke doesn't talk about the Magi coming to visit Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus. Luke doesn't talk about Herod slaughtering the innocents or the family's flight into Egypt and return trip. Those are big deals. Luke is very selective, What does Luke tell us between the birth and public ministry of Jesus? He tells us this account. And it has great significance. I'll just clue you in. I think Luke dials in on on this statement of Jesus because of its significance to who he is and his mission. We dare not treat this lightly. This book inspired by the Holy Spirit given to the church then and today for our instruction about who Jesus is and how we should walk in the light of this revelation. These words of Jesus, when we get to that climactic verse, have great significance. The context, though, I'm going to begin with that, is about growing up Jewish. Growing up Jewish, something most of us can't identify with, uh, being Gentiles for the large part. But this text tells us that Mary and Joseph, as being devout, pious Jews uh, with a right relationship with God under the old covenant, they did everything for Jesus according to the law of the Lord. They were conscientious parents, and they raised this little boy in this faith. I want to point out some of the terms used for Jesus here just in this text so that you can see from uh, uh, just in the course of one chapter that we go from baby to man. Uh, What was the earlier term back in Luke chapter 2 verse 16? Jesus, the Greek word there was baby. Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that happened that the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby. The Greek word for baby in verse 16. By the time we get to verse 40 in today's passage, it says when they had done everything, performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee. Um, I need my glasses for this verse, I guess. Verse 40, and the child. This is a word that we might translate into common English, the little boy. The little boy. Uh, We don't necessarily think of them as school age yet when you say this age group. You know, it doesn't specify exactly how old, whether it was four or six or two, but the little boy, summarized in verse four, is that young boy. But then again, in verse 43, it says this, when the feast was ended as they were returning, the youth... Jesus. ESV uses boy again, but it's a different term. And it applies to either boys or girls right up into adulthood. We can think teenage years where they're no longer a child as in little boy or little girl. You drop the little. 
So we see even in the Greek, which is baby, little boy, youth, that we're seeing the growth of Jesus under his Jewish parents. And I want to take a minute to mention that his growth was not only physical, but his growth, if you can grasp it, was intellectual and in every capacity that a human being grows. Jesus became fully man. His body, shaped in his mother's womb, would grow. Those cells would multiply. He would eventually have a beard and a lower voice. Our Lord Jesus grew not only bodily, but in his understanding, his book learning, his learning not only carpentry and all those skills, but his learning about the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, the prophets, the prophecies, learning going to Hebrew school, which would be natural because it was the spoken language as well as Aramaic and Greek. This little boy would grow, and growth was natural for him. John Calvin says, growing up gradually is part of what the Lord took on himself in condescending to our human condition. He freely took what cannot be separated from his human nature. Where the Scots theologian Donald MacLeod said, Jesus had a human brain according to the same laws of perception memory, logic, and development as our own. He observed and learned and remembered and applied. So when we get to the final summary statement and it says Jesus increased in wisdom, it doesn't mean that he was not God and became God. He became wise or he started as a human being and transitioned to a son of God. No. Jesus, the son of God, fully divine, yet also fully human, His humanity increased. Not everything that's said of the Lord Jesus Christ applies to both his divine nature and his human nature. In his divinity, he had no increasing to do. He himself was the word of God, the wisdom of God. But in his humanity, body and mind grew. Baby, little boy to youth. And as this growing up Jewish continues, they would observe the annual festivals. The word of God required, you can look this up in Exodus 23. The word of God required that every male Jewish man attend at least three of the festivals in Jerusalem in person for worship. The Passover, uh, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles. Here we're told only about the Passover feast. And Mary wasn't required to go, but she went. And that was her habit as well as Joseph. That's what the text tells us. In fact, we think Mary and the whole family traveled to this particular event every year. And when I say family, we know the age of Jesus is 12. We'll get to that in a minute. There were other children born to Mary and Joseph. The stepbrothers and sisters And so they're probably in the train with everyone. The family's all going. And you can't just leave the kids with the grandparents because the grandparents are likely going if they're able to travel to observe the Passover. And let me pause. It's not apparently at the center of the story. It says this was the feast of the Passover. What was the Passover about? I hope you know. If you've been a Christian some time, I hope you've been reading your Old Testament, that you read, for instance, the book of Exodus, 
you know, the exit from captivity and slavery. It's the primary Old Testament picture for salvation. How do we get out of slavery to Pharaoh? God sends a deliverer. And through mighty power, signs and wonders, we are, they were delivered. Part of that deliverance was that final plague, the death of the firstborn. This is getting interesting, don't you think, that it happens to be a Passover context for this event. Because the Passover event, the, the angel of death was coming and each firstborn, whether Israel or Egypt, would die unless they had taken the blood of a lamb and sprinkled it on the doorpost and lintels of the house and eaten that meal in haste that they might leave the next day. Death passed over the people of Israel who put their trust in the blood of the lamb. Significant context. So they're here, the family, Jesus and Mary, Joseph and any siblings, are in Jerusalem to celebrate that. And it was no typical annual visit. We're told very explicitly in the text, verse 42, when he, Jesus, was 12 years old, they went up, what? According to custom. What what custom? It's not just the commandment that you go and attend. No, there was a custom. And it has to do with age 12. What are we talking about? If you know something about Judaism, especially today where it's been slightly revived, You know that at age 13, there's this process a young man goes through. You probably know the name, right? The Hebrew word, bar mitzvah. Bar meaning son, mitzvah meaning Hebrew for commandment, son of the commandment, son of the law. When a young man has that transition and and enters, as it were, into adulthood in the synagogue, in God's people. I now know the commandments of God and I will keep them. A spiritual coming out for a son. And nowadays they do bat mitzvah for a daughter of the commandment. Jesus at age 12 would begin the preparation for that event at age 13. How do you begin the preparation? It was the custom of the day for the son to go with the father to these festivals. And not just to tag along because he's one of the kids. He was a young man in preparation He would go and there would be specific discussion groups, probably for all the 12-year-olds and their dads. You know, they get them together in one of the areas of the temple, perhaps. And they're instructed about the responsibilities of taking up the covenant and the commandments of God. It was a significant visit for Jesus. It wasn't just a trip and something funny happened on our trip. It's not like on vacation, this happened, let me tell you about it. My friends, we need to read the text, this holy text given to us to see these things. And and frankly, we're so ignorant of so much history. Sometimes a study Bible or uh, a Bible dictionary alongside, alongside our reading can help. Why is the age 12 significant? The Bible tells us that. He was preparing for his bar mitzvah. And so they're in Jerusalem. That's the whole context. And that was part of his growing up Jewish. But he wasn't just growing up Jewish and and following his father in name, Joseph. Jesus was connecting with his father, the Lord God. So this next section we see uh, 
centered around the temple. Jesus is found in his father's house. Um, in, in picking the title for the sermon, I, I ran across a choice by a different preacher, and I thought it, it made me wince a little bit, so I stayed away from it. He titled his sermon, Left Behind. And I thought, that has too much contemporary baggage with end times doctrines. And, and you know, that's not the point of the sermon. That's not the point of the text. Mary and Joseph weren't negligent. This young man was about to have his coming out. He was a responsible man. He could get married at 13, so he was right on the cusp of adulthood. In that culture, he would probably have a free reign in the caravan as it traveled. The little tykes had to hold mom and dad's hands, but Jesus and other young teens would have free reign in the caravan. So it's not he got left behind. Jesus stayed. Isn't that what the Bible tells us? Verse 43, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind. Jesus made a choice to continue his preparations. Jesus was old enough that he could have traveled home on his own after perhaps some further studies. He was engaging in a new way at a new level for himself as a Jewish 12-year-old, but there's more going on. We just want to point out that in these travel details, Jesus did not sin. He was of an age where this was permissible, and uh, his parents didn't quite grasp all of that. You see the caravan, I'm, I keep saying caravan, multiple families from a vicinity would travel together for safety and support. Typically all the men would walk along together, all the women back then were likely charged with all the children and preparations. So, it, you know, Joseph probably thought Jesus might be in the other group or with the young people and Mary thought he was with Joseph. So this absence was discovered at the end of the first day. And it talks about how three days uh, they searched. The reference uh, to three days in verse uh, 46, I think covers the whole one day departure, one day coming back, and one day to search Jerusalem. The Passover is over. Most people were leaving or had left. So there were limited places that they would have searched. Their housing, the markets, the squares, and finally the temple courts. They find that Jesus had stayed. They found that Jesus was in the temple. And we we know that doesn't mean in the Holy of Holies. That doesn't even mean where the priests would function by the offering uh, altar or the laver uh, for washing or the smoke of incense. He was just in the temple precincts, in the courts, perhaps in the colonnade where teaching was underway. God's word says this. Verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Verse 47 adds, adds, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Jesus in the temple with the teachers, that advanced seminar the teachers of the temple the concept it is the word for teachers it's not the word for rabbis but it would be similar there would be a rabbinic instruction typically um, the, the the teacher would be seated at front and students would either stand or sit at his feet 
And he'd say something and they might question that and he might question them and, and the Socratic method back and forth. It tells us first, Jesus was listening. Let's take note of that because he's still growing in his understanding. Perhaps the lesson that day was on Isaiah 53 and bells were going off in the young Messiah's brain or the suffering servant of Isaiah or some other reference to Messiah and that that deeply engaged his attention. He knew who his heavenly father was as we see and he knew he was here to do his father's will. But he's connecting all these dots as his grasp in his human mind of the scriptures comes together. He was hungering and thirsting after the things of God. The people that observed this in verse 47 uh, took note of him. Uh, The word is strong. They were amazed. Something really incredible is going on here. This isn't just, oh, isn't it nice, all these young people gives me hope for the next generation look at all these young people no it's not just appreciation it's like did you hear that I've never thought of it that way they're engaging with amazement and awe at Jesus and you know what that's a precursor of his whole ministry isn't it Jesus would provoke the interest people would say no one's taught like this to the word of God made flesh and again we recall The event was the Passover, the meaning of the exodus, the sacrificial lamb, the deliverance of God's people was perhaps the likely topic of the day. And yet when he's found by his mother, Mary asks why. And Mary's question has has an implied rebuke in it, doesn't it? When his parents saw him, They were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. That is a very strong word, near panic. And you know what? The Bible is spot on in understanding human condition. What would a parent who thinks they've lost a child be feeling? I think great distress just begins to scratch the surface. If you've ever lost a child, even for a few moments, you know that your whole being is racked with concern. Mary and Joseph had that reaction. They're amazed. They react. They're, they're astonished would be a, 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 perhaps a better word. When they see this, they, they can't quite connect what's happening. But then they have this question. And in Jesus' answer, in what he says here in verse uh, 49, is the key to the passage. This is why Luke is telling this whole episode. Hear this. And he, Jesus, said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Their concern for him was misplaced. He's he's saying, "Why, why, why even look for me? You should just know automatically. If I'm not with you, I am with my father in his house. I am about my father's business. Didn't you know that I must be 
about my father's business. And yes, there's a juxtaposition here. Mary had just said um, that your father and I have been searching for you. I have no idea how challenging it was for Joseph to raise Jesus. But the Lord picked him as much as the Lord picked Mary. And he loved Jesus like his own, I'm sure of it, and searched for him. But when Mary says this, she is eclipsing a a reality that an angel had told her more than once. The child born to you will be the Son of God. God is the Father of God, the Son. Perhaps, says Dale Ralph Davis, the daily contact of Mary and Joseph with the human Jesus had had the effect of making them almost forget the divine statements about him. You know, in the daily discourse, you know, doing your chores, doing this, doing your homework, another A, good for you, uh, all those parenting things. And 12 years of a good child, perhaps the divine pronouncements had had just kind of been admired on a shelf in a way. And in her reaction, it was an overreaction because she had forgotten the truth of God for a moment. Jesus is found in the temple and his declaration is unique. It's powerful. It's like an explosion of truth. No Jew would say such a thing. My father's house? Certainly you would say, uh, I worship the Lord God of heaven and earth. Uh, The Lord is my God. That would be said. And God is like a father. and, and, And he cares for us. But for some individual Jew to speak with that level of intimacy was unheard of. There's no record of it. My father? My father's house. And and yes, you might know the the King James and other accurate translations that say about my father's business. Because the the phrase here is, is literally, I must be in the things of my father. Yeah, there's a Greek word for thing. The things of. There's a certain vagueness about it. But the idiom means where... Your possessions are, where your business is, where is your house? So house is is a fine way to capture that accurately, as well as about my father's business. But we don't want to make one too commercial or one too residential. Jesus is declaring his relationship with the father. Jesus is declaring God's mission for him comes first. I must be here. Indeed, if we're going forward in today's text, from this temple scene, Jesus answered, kind of quieted down Mary and Joseph. They didn't know what to say. They didn't understand the saying that he spoke to them. Luke tells us that explicitly. There's there's no reply. There's no rest of the conversation. It just 
well, we're heading back to Nazareth, I will go with you. What is it going forward that we see here? First, going forward, we see a foreshadowing of the future ministry of Jesus. This text has told us what motivates Jesus, where he is and what he does. Jesus expected his earthly parents to know that he must be about his father's business. There is a compulsion, there is a rightness, there is a purpose in this. That's his mission, that's his focus. And if you've read the Gospels, you see that, right? That, that's nothing new to most of us who've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You, you get a flavor for it in John 6, verse 38. Jesus said, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And many times he would say, I can't stay here any longer. I must go to other villages to preach and teach and heal and make God known. He had a sense of mission and it would direct his steps. It would direct his steps even when Mary and some of his stepbrothers were knocking at the door. Jesus, your family's outside. remember the answer of Jesus? I don't have the text, but Jesus says, paraphrasing, who are my mother and brothers? Those who believe, those who are serving in the kingdom are my mother and brother. Jesus' priorities were driven by his identity as the son of God. And that's not to offend Mary and Joseph. That's not to rebuke them or put them down. Jesus says, let's keep this straight. I'm not just some kid who learns and gets in over his head and gets killed in Jerusalem. I am the son of God. I came to make the father known, to lay down my life and take it up again. His ministry was foreshadowed by these words of mandate. And on some pretty challenging days, Jesus would say to the 12 disciples, I must go up to Jerusalem and be killed and buried, but on the third day be raised. How thankful we ought to be for a Savior with such focus, who perfectly did the Father's will. Well, going forward, what do we do with the parents who don't understand? They did not understand. And if I were to type out uh, all, when I put a little dot, 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 that means there's a very important word that I haven't given you in the outline. They didn't understand yet. They didn't understand yet. In verse 48, they they were amazed at where they found him. They they were surprised. Uh, They didn't understand his answer. Verse 50 says that. They did not understand the saying. John Calvin says, Joseph and Mary did not understand. Though they were not wholly unacquainted with Christ's heavenly origin. That's the old-fashioned way of saying they did know something. Yet they did not comprehend in every respect, says John Calvin, how Jesus was intent on executing his heavenly father's commands. For his calling had not been expressly revealed to them. They did. Okay, that's right. Your father in heaven. Got it. Not going to say another word, but I don't understand. 
Are you coming to Galilee? And what about your bar mitzvah, your training? They didn't fully understand how this would play out. But what did they do? They walked by faith. They understood who he was. This is your father's house. You're the son of God. Thanks for the reminder. And they, they just go on. They, they, they do what God calls them to do, to be husband and wife and raise their children, teaching them the things of God and providing for them. They do what they do, even if they don't fully understand. They walk by faith. Verse 51 is explicit. It says that uh, when they got back to Nazareth, his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Mary's got a habit. What does Mary collect? She collects treasures. And we're not talking seashells or doilies or salt shakers. What does Mary collect? These precious moments about Jesus. And I'm so glad she's collected them. I think she gave Luke this story from her lips to his ears. The Holy Spirit helped Luke put this all together. But we think Mary was his eyewitness testimony. She could have talked about those magis. All the gifts they brought. They had the camels. It was a big night. She talked about this, and this is what Luke selectively puts together. Because like his Lord, Luke is focused on the mission. Why Jesus came, who Jesus is. And for him, this is the key story to tell. They did not yet understand, but Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. This particular word is only used a couple of times. It's a little different from the word used earlier. This one is more intense in in a certain respect, to watch carefully, to guard with vigilance. The other use is a passage you might not expect. It was a guardedness against sin and and failure. So this treasure is not just a little heart and a memory in a box under the bed. This called for active vigilance, a carefulness of watching I've got to keep this in mind. I've got to believe it, even though by sight I don't understand. By faith I know it's true. And I've I've got to do my part to do right by Jesus. That's Mary's model of walking by faith. Again, John Calvin says, Mary kept in her heart those things which she did not fully understand. Let us learn from this, he says, to receive with reverence and lay up in our minds like the seed which is allowed to remain for some time underground, those mysteries of God which exceed our capacity. Have you ever read the Bible and read something that exceeds your capacity? You don't have to raise your hand. Yeah. What do we do? We, we receive God's word by faith and, and, and we, we take it in as much as we can and we let it uh, simmer. It's important. They did not understand, but they did what God called them to do, and they did it by faith. By the way, Joseph, we don't hear from Joseph again in the Gospel of Luke. Tradition says, we don't know this for sure, but tradition is pretty much of a consensus that before Jesus began his public ministry in Luke chapter 3, that Joseph had passed away. And the family was being cared by Jesus' other brothers, and he began his public ministry. There's a third thing pointing out going forward, and the text says this in verse 51, and he, Jesus, went down with them, and 
again, Jerusalem is kind of in the Judean hills. So to go north to Galilee and Nazareth, you'd be going downhill for much of the trip. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Wait, I, I thought verse 49, he planted his flag and said, I'm the son of God. I'm here in God's house. This is where I'm going to stay. No, he didn't say he was going to stay. But it was this revelatory moment. And Jesus understood. He wanted to keep the law perfectly. And the custom was at age 12 to begin this preparation, at age 13 to finish it. I think Jesus resolved to do all things properly and he submitted to Joseph and Mary as his earthly parents and went back with them. This word for submit, upostasso, to place under. It's something you willingly do. When the Bible calls for submission, whether it's Jesus or one of us, this is the word. And you know what? Submission is not an ugly thing because it's something Jesus regularly did to his father's will it can be abused by the one you submit to but to submit is a beautiful thing Jesus went to Nazareth in submission he had a sense of timing he had a sense of duty he wanted to do all things properly by growing up in Nazareth this this is going from age 12 to about age 30 there's another 18 years here It's a long time to stay in that dwelling, to see his mother through that transition into widowhood and see that she was provided for before he began his earthly ministry around age 30. According to Matthew 13, verse 55, he would be known as the carpenter's son, the people there that had just heard Jesus are scratching their head. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Who is this guy? Really, that's one of the questions. And on the day when he began his public ministry, God the Father himself owned Jesus as his beloved son, with whom he was well pleased. Going forward. Well, let's take just a couple minutes on some closing applications. These are important. Some takeaways, they're sprinkled throughout the message, but here's a few at the end. First, we need to hear and know who Jesus is. We need to hear and know Jesus as divine Son of God, our Savior. We need to see him as both human and divine. Two natures, one person. Very unique, there's no one like that. He's a part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but he is also part of humanity. Born of a woman, born under the law. Is this the Jesus you profess? Why would I take pains to emphasize that? Because there is a heresy about Jesus not being divine. And it didn't just start with a guy named Arius from Alexandria in the 200s AD. This local priest uh, used this passage and other passages to say, well, you know, Jesus couldn't have been God because he had growing up to do. He had learning to do. This is one of the passages that Arius used to fight his fight. And Arius was really popular, in part because he was a poet and a songster. He was really popular. He had a, a lot of following on social media, if we can put it that way. And he spread his heresy. You know, Jesus wasn't God, but God adopted him and he did a lot of great stuff. 
Arius, if you're listening, if Jesus be not God, equal with God, his blood would not be sufficient for the salvation of Adam's race. And I'm so glad when the Council of Nicaea was called in 325, Athanasius, boom, one of the heroes of the faith. I've got a picture, so-called picture, of Athanasius in my office. You need to know who this guy is. He stood against the tide of this popular heretical teacher and said, no, Jesus is equal with God. He is co-eternal. He is co-equal. And the Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed solidified that truth, affirmed that truth, and the heresy was crushed. But you know what? The heresy is still around. You know, if you do a rough search for Arius, you'll find that there's a group today, uh, even in our nearby community, that really celebrates him as kind of a martyr for the truth. The Society of uh, Unitarian Universalists. I think they got a big place over in Schenectady. Their website, the national website, celebrates Arius. Those mean people in power suppressed him, and he's a martyr for the truth. Who do you think Jesus is? It's a really important question, and it's an ongoing question for a lot of people, but we're given the truth here. He's the Son of God. He claimed the Father. The Father claimed him. He had a mission, and without his divinity, his mission would fail. So know who Jesus is. Hear that. Believe that. You don't have to be able to explain the whole trinity or the hypostatic union between God, the Son, and and the Son of Man, two natures in one person. That's mind-boggling. But although we do not understand, we can treasure and believe the truth. God help us. Store up, that's the second application, store up the things about the Lord you don't yet understand. Be humble, be teachable. Take the time to wait upon the Lord. And don't just throw up your hands. You know, if the Trinity is confusing, I was talking to a man two weeks ago that did not believe the Holy Spirit was part of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit was just a force. An ancient heresy again. And it was in the internet forum, so I couldn't really get the guy by the lapels and say, what are you thinking? A lot of young Christians don't understand, but have you studied the scriptures where it explains the Holy Spirit is equal with God the Father? To lie to the Spirit is equivalent to lying to God, Acts chapter 5. To see that the pronouns are used of the Holy Spirit are masculine. And the Holy Spirit is a person. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. There's a case to be made from scripture. When we don't understand, we still believe the truth, but we pursue that understanding. I could probably use that as a further plug to attend Sunday school. You might learn something if you give another hour on your Sundays to study. A final exhortation is this. What business are you about? Are you and I about our Heavenly Father's business? What drives you? What drives us? If you're on campus and it's the weekend and you see a student in the library with a stack of books, you might guess that they're driven by their coursework, their desire for success academically. You see someone uh, jogging faithfully, rain or shine. They're in pursuit of better health. 
What business are you about? What drives your life? What is non-negotiable in your schedule, in your priorities, in your commitments? I think this passage kind of begs that question. Jesus made it clear for himself. You know, there's something about parenting I learned from R.C. Sproul. When you're raising children and the world, adults come up to the children and say, what do you want to be when you grow up? We've heard this question, right? And if you listen carefully, the question is, what do you want to be when you grow up? And yeah, it's kind of a nudge thing because it's talking about who, who they would be in their person, not what do you want to do when you grow up. That's simple. But when they say, what do you want to be when you grow up? I took R.C. Sproul's answer and I taught it to my children, the boys and the girls, so that they would have a ready answer and that they would say, I want to be a godly man <laughs> and just kind of knock the questioner kind of back up a few steps. I want to be a godly woman. And they were young, and I tried to explain the nuance between being and doing. Your job doesn't define you. If you want to do the work of a firefighter and be a fireman, that doesn't define all of who you are. Every Christian should be in the employ of our Heavenly Father. We should all say, I want to be a godly man. I want to be a godly woman. I want to be about my father's business. Is that your answer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is powerful to penetrate into our hearts and minds. It's not just something we study for intellectual curiosity. Your word is life. Your word is is changing us for the better. Oh, Father, may your word work on us so today that we are all the more about your business, that we are not serving two masters. That's bound to fail. May you have first place, even though for seasons we are parents or employees or this or that in function. The overriding concern is that we know Christ, we belong to Christ, and we serve our God. Father, help us in all these ways. May your word bear fruit among us and through us in this corner of the world. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.